Today is the 19th of November, 2010. I've been asked to speak about some of the common misunderstandings about Buddhism. And there are many different varieties of this for many different reasons. There are some that are culturally specific, either to our Western culture or to Asian and other cultures that are influenced by our modern Western thinking. There are misconceptions that could come from other cultural areas, traditional Chinese thinking and so on. There could be misunderstanding that arises more in general due to people's disturbing emotions. There can be misunderstandings that arise from uh, just the fact that the material is difficult to understand. Misunderstanding could arise because of teachers not explaining things clearly or leaving things not explained at all so that we project onto them what we think they mean. It could also be that the teachers themselves misunderstand the teachings. That happens sometimes because not all teachers are fully qualified. Many uh, are sent to teach or asked to teach before they are uh, qualified. And uh, also, even if teachers explain things clearly, we might not hear them properly. A lot of people don't listen very well. And uh, the teachings don't really register on them correctly in terms of what the teacher actually said, or they take poor notes and they don't remember them correctly, and so on. So there are many, many reasons for misunderstanding. Today, I sat down and uh, started to list some of them, and I came up with 30 that uh, just came to mind sitting down at the uh, computer, at which point I stopped. And uh, I think that one can find, because of all these different reasons for misunderstanding, many, many mistakes that we make or confusion that we have. And as I say, not all of them are limited to us Westerners. We find a lot of this misunderstanding among the Tibetans and other traditional Asians as well. So I thought to limit what I uh, mention here to just a few general topics rather than just go on and on. Although, in fact, we might not be able to cover everything that I noted down here. The areas that I uh, would like to focus on are ethics, the topic of gurus, the topic of practice, and the topic of tantra. So these are only a few, obviously. I've left out voidness and all these other things that uh, we could easily misunderstand. So let's begin. Since there are quite a few points here, I won't go into great detail about any of them, but just mention them for your consideration. And these are things that we can think about further. In terms of ethics, I think in this case and in many cases, the... uh, misunderstanding can often arise because of translation terms. We uh, often project non-Buddhist concepts onto the teachings. And, uh, for example, we might use biblical terminology, terminology that have connotations from our biblical traditions, such as the words virtuous, non-virtuous, merit, sin, these sort of words that 
project onto the teachings on ethics in Buddhism the whole idea of moral judgment and guilt. That some things are virtuous meaning good and proper, and we're good people if we do that, and that we build up a merit like some sort of reward, and if we act in a non-virtuous, oh, not in a holy type of way, then we are bad, and uh, we build up sins for which we must suffer. This is uh, clearly a projection of biblical ethics onto the Buddhist ethics, because in Buddhism, ethics are uh, basically based on developing discriminating awareness between what's constructive, what's destructive, what will be beneficial, what will be harmful. Next, it's a misunderstanding to regard the vows as laws, so to believe that Buddhist ethics are based on obedience to laws rather than based on discriminating awareness. So, depending on which culture we come from, in some cultures people take laws very, very seriously, and then we become quite inflexible, that we don't want to break the law. This is the way it is, and no discussion about it. Whereas the uh, Tibetans are quite relaxed in terms of the ethical guidelines. That doesn't mean that they're sloppy, but it means that in certain situations one has to use one's discriminating awareness in terms of how you apply the guideline. Because what we're trying to discriminate here is whether we are acting under the influence of a disturbing emotion or whether there is a constructive reason for our way of behaving. To the other extreme, we could look at uh, the vows. I'm talking specifically here about vows. Like a lawyer. And so we are looking for loopholes in the presentation of karma so as to find excuses for acting destructively or for compromising and watering down a vow. Let me give an example of how we look for these loopholes in a legal, legalistic type of way. For example, we could take a vow to avoid inappropriate sexual behavior. And then we assert that having oral sex is okay because it's an expression of love. So we excuse ourselves because we happen to like this form of sexual behavior. Or after taking a vow to give up alcohol... We say that it's okay to have wine at a meal with our parents so as not to offend them. Or it's okay to drink occasionally so long as we don't get drunk. So we make these sort of excuses excuses to try to get around a vow. The point being that if we take a vow, you take the whole vow. You don't take part of the vow. This is the way the vow is specified. If we can't keep all the details of the vows or any particular vow is specified in the text, then don't take the vow. There's no obligation to uh, take the vow. There is an alternative in the Abhidharma discussion about vows. They have three categories. There's a vow in which you vow basically to refrain from something which is destructive, And then there's something which is very difficult to translate. It's literally an anti-vow. It's a vow not to restrain from, for instance, killing. If you uh, join the army, you're going to shoot the enemy or something like that. 
And uh, then there's something which is uh, in between. And it's this in between category which uh, we could apply here. In other words, we could refrain from part of what's specified in a vow, like uh, not having sex with somebody else's partner, or not having violence in our sex, or uh, raping someone, forcing them to have sex, something like that. If there are parts of the vow that we think that I can't really keep. And making a promise like that is not actually the vow as specified in the text, but it is far more positive, builds up more positive force. I prefer positive force rather than merit, and negative force rather than sin. So it builds up more positive force on our mental continuum than just refraining from that type of behavior. And so this doesn't compromise the vow, and yet becomes a very strong form of ethical practice. Another mistake about uh, ethics is uh, misunderstanding that Buddhist ethics are humanistic. Humanistic means that we just avoid doing things that would harm others. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. And what we want to avoid is hurting others. Uh, This is humanistic ethics, or at least my understanding of humanistic ethics. And although that's very nice, very good, that is not the basis of Buddhist ethics. The basis of Buddhist ethics is emphasis on avoiding what's self-destructive, because we don't know what is going to hurt others. You could give somebody a million euros thinking that we are going to benefit them, and the next day, because they have that money, they get robbed and murdered. So we don't know what's going to be of benefit to somebody else. We can't see the future. What is specified in Buddhist teachings is that if we act destructively on the basis of disturbing emotions, anger, greed, lust, jealousy, naivety, these sort of things, It is self-destructive. It builds up negative habit to repeat that and is going to cause us to experience suffering ourselves. This is the basis of uh, Buddhist ethics. And a corollary of this is that this idea of Buddhist ethics being humanistic, just don't hurt others, often seems to come from premature emphasis on Mahayana practice, thinking that we can skip over the initial and intermediate Lamrim stages. Beginning stages, the initial stages, avoid worse rebirths. Well, we don't even believe in rebirths. The intermediate level, avoid rebirth altogether in samsara. Well, we still don't believe in rebirth. So none of that really strikes us as important. Let's skip over that. And we're attracted to the Mahayana teachings because... In many ways, it sounds very much like some of our Western traditions of love and patience and compassion and being generous, practicing charity, and so on. sounds very, very nice. And so we are attracted to that, skipping over or minimizing the importance of these initial scopes at which you are working on overcoming the disturbing emotions, destructive behavior, etc., because it is self-destructive and just 
going toward trying to help others. So that's a mistake, even though it's important to emphasize Mahayana. It has to be on the basis of the initial and intermediate scopes. A strong reason why many of us would rather skip over the initial scope teachings is because we think that rebirth doesn't exist. After all, the emphasis here is to avoid worse rebirths. Therefore, we take refuge, put a positive direction in our life, and follow the laws of karma to avoid destructive behavior because it will bring us worse rebirths. So we skip over that or de-emphasize it because we don't believe in rebirth. And especially, we certainly don't believe in the hell realms and the clutching ghosts, the hungry ghost realms, and the gods and the anti-gods. We think that they don't really exist and that the descriptions in the Dharma texts are really just referring to psychological states of uh, humans. That really is an injustice to the teachings and is a big misunderstanding. I don't want to go into tremendous detail here, but if we think of a mind, mental continuum, mental continuum, whether ours or anybody else's, can experience much further on the spectrum, in fact, the entire spectrum of happiness and unhappiness and pleasure and pain, and not just the limited amount of that spectrum that is defined by the parameters of our body and our mind as a human. Animals can see further, some of them they can hear better and so on, so why not? that the boundaries in terms of what we can experience in terms of happiness, unhappiness, pleasure, and pain can also be extended and have an appropriate physical form as its basis. So, even though we have in the presentation of karma that there can be some after effects, some leftovers of previous lifetimes in these other realms, so we find things that are similar to them, Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that we can reduce the discussion of these other life forms that we can take and others can take simply to human psychological states. Because of not accepting rebirth and these other uh, states of existence, we misunderstand karma as describing merely consequences of our actions that will happen in this life. And that causes a lot of problems because... There are big criminals that seem to get away with it. They're never caught. And we could experience all sorts of horrible things in our lifetime happening to us, and we've never really done something outstandingly destructive. So karma doesn't seem to make any sense if we limit our discussion or our view just to this lifetime. And all of this underlines a much larger problem, a much larger misunderstanding about Dharma, which is that we can pick and choose within Dharma, within Buddhism, only what we like, and we can discard or ignore what we have trouble accepting, so-called sanitized Buddhism. We sanitize it or clean it of all the things that are difficult that, well, these stories about karma with elephants that go under the earth and that excrete gold and all these other things, well, oh, come on. Those are fairy tales for children. We don't see that there is some lesson in there. Whether we take it literally or not, the way that some Tibetans do is not the point. The point is not to dismiss it. It's part of the teachings. 
or the idea of in the Mahayana Sutras that the Buddhas are teaching hundreds of millions of beings and there are hundreds of millions of Buddhas attending and in every core of the Buddha another hundred million and so on and just being embarrassed about that and saying this is too weird and not accepting it so picking and choosing the parts that we like well there are certain Tantric and Bodhisattva vows against that to just take parts of the teachings and ignore others just take what we like if we're going to accept Buddhism as our spiritual path we at least need to be open enough to say I don't understand this teaching even if it sounds very weird to us and I will at least hold off judgment on it until I get a better understanding a better explanation deeper explanation not to just close our minds off and dismiss them another misunderstanding is that even if we do accept rebirth to think that it's going to be so easy to have a precious human rebirth again we often think that yeah yeah I believe in rebirth and of course I'm going to be a human and of course I'm going to have all the opportunities to continue practicing and so on that's being very naive very, very naive, especially if we think of the amount of destructive behavior that we've had, the amount of time that we have spent under the influence of disturbing emotions, anger, greed, selfishness, etc., as compared to the amount of time that we have acted under pure love and compassion, then it's quite clear that it's going to be very difficult to get a precious human rebirth again. And... Another fallacy that comes here, a misunderstanding, is that because of attachment to friends and family, striving to have a precious human rebirth so we could continue to be with them, or even just thinking that if I attain a precious human rebirth again, well, of course, I will meet with all my friends and uh, relatives and loved ones again. That also is a misunderstanding. There are how many (laughs) countless life forms sentient beings and we're all going to be reborn in different situations and so there is absolutely no guarantee in fact there's a much greater possibility that it's going to be a very long time before we encounter anyone again from this lifetime we may it's not that it's impossible but it's a misunderstanding to think it's so easy or that it's guaranteed another thing in terms of karma and rebirth then is that even if we accept that suffering in this lifetime is the ripening of negative karmic potentials built up in previous lives, thinking that, well, if I suffer, if something bad happens to me, I deserve it. Or you deserve it if it happened to you. The misunderstanding here is that it implies a solidly existent me who broke the law, is guilty and bad, and now is getting the punishment that... I deserve. Also, we place the blame then on me, the solid me, who's so bad and now is uh, being punished because of oversimplifying the laws of karma, behavioral cause and effect. We don't see that there are many factors involved with experiencing the ripening of the karma, such as all the circumstances in which various karmic results ripen, There are causes for those. It's a mistake. It's a misunderstanding to think that I am the cause 
for the ripening of other people's karma. What we experience arises dependently on all of these factors, not just on me. I'll give an example. We're hit by a car. Now, it's not because of what I did in a previous lifetime that causes the other person to hit me. We think, well, I'm responsible for them hitting me. No, what we are responsible for is experiencing being hit. That person's karma is responsible for them hitting us with the car. And so, like this, what happens to us is the result of the interaction of many, many different karmic factors and disturbing emotions and general factors like the weather, it was raining, the road was slippery, etc., etc., that all go together to bring about the coming about of a situation in which we have suffering or problems. So these are some of the misunderstandings that can come up in terms of ethics, karma, and so on. I'm sure there are many, many more. These are just the ones that came to my head as I was thinking about it today. Now about gurus. I think that's a big area of misunderstanding, not only among Westerners. First of all, because of the emphasis on the importance of the guru, we misunderstand that the guru needs to be qualified. needs to be a qualified guru and there are lists of the qualifications. And even if the guru is qualified, we need to feel inspired by this person because one of the main reasons for the importance of the spiritual teacher is that the teacher provides inspiration, the energy for us to practice, the model that we want to follow. We can get information from books, from the internet, and so on. Of course, they need to answer questions. They need to be able to correct us when we're making mistakes in our meditation practice. But if they don't inspire us, we're not going to get terribly far. But because of that misunderstanding that they really need to be qualified and they really need to inspire us, we're in a rush to accept somebody as our guru without examining him or her fully or properly first because of this emphasis, you have to have a guru, I have to have a guru. And then we risk the possibility of getting disillusioned when later we see objectively that he or she has faults. We didn't examine properly. This is a big problem because many scandals have arisen over spiritual teachers who either were rightly or wrongly accused of improper behavior. And sometimes they're rightly accused of that. They weren't really qualified. And we might have felt pressured by this emphasis on the guru to accept this person as our guru. And then we see these things happen and we are just devastated. As an auxiliary to this, it's a misunderstanding to think that all Tibetans, or more limited, all monks and nuns, or even more limited, all Rinpoches and Geishas and Kempos are perfect examples of Buddhist practice. That is a very common misunderstanding. We think, ah, oh, they must be perfect Buddhists, they're Tibetan. Or perfect Buddhists, they're wearing robes. Perfect Buddhists, they have a title of Rinpoche. They must be an enlightened being. This is very naive. These are regular people. 
there might be a larger proportion of practicing Buddhists among the Tibetans than in most societies. There may be certain Buddhist values which are part of their culture, but that doesn't mean that they're all perfect by any means. And if one becomes a monk or a nun, there can be many reasons. Among the Tibetans, it could be that the family put you in a monastery as a child because they couldn't feed you and you would get food and an education. It could be for a more self-motivated reason that I have problems and I need the discipline of the monastic life in order to overcome these problems. As one of my uh, Rinpoche friends said, wearing the robes is a sign that I really need this discipline because I'm a very undisciplined person and have a lot of disturbing emotions and I really putting full effort into overcoming them. That doesn't mean that they have overcome them. And so we shouldn't naively think that they're all enlightened, especially with these Rinpoches and so on. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says, to just rely on a big name of a predecessor is really a big mistake. That uh, these Rinpoches in this lifetime have to demonstrate and prove their qualifications, not just rely on the reputation of their name. On the other hand, it's a misunderstanding not to respect and support monks and nuns but rather to make them into the servants of lay people at Dharma centers. This often happens, that there's a Dharma center, and they have a resident monk or nun, and they have to clean the house, and they have to tidy up and fix everything for the teachings, and they have to collect the fees. (coughs) And if it's a residential center, they have to take care of the bedding and all those sort of things, and they can't even attend the teachings. And the lay people think that these are our servants. It's just the other way around. As monks or nuns, they are very deserving of respect, regardless of what level of their ethics are. And this is part of the teachings. One respects even the robes. It doesn't mean that you think that they're perfect and are naive about it. But a certain respect needs to be shown. Also, there's a big misunderstanding about guru devotion, the so-called term. I think it's not a very helpful translation because it uh, seems to imply almost blind guru worship, like uh, in a cult. That's a big misunderstanding. The term that is used here in terms of the relation with the spiritual teacher means to rely on and trust a qualified spiritual teacher like we would rely on and trust a qualified doctor. The same term is used for our relation with our doctor. But uh, because of the instruction to see the guru as a Buddha, we misunderstand that to think that the teacher is infallible, and so we have to have unquestioning obedience to the guru, like in a cult. That's a mistake. And because of that, we give up all critical ability and responsibility for ourselves and we become dependent on asking often Mo's throw the dice and make all our decisions for us. We are aiming to become Buddhas ourselves, to developing the discriminating awareness to be able to make intelligent, compassionate decisions ourselves. So if a teacher 
is just aiming to make us dependent on him or her, like in a power trip, there's something wrong here. And it's a misunderstanding to think that this is okay. Go along with it. Play into this type of power and control syndrome with a teacher that really is not following the guidelines properly. It's also a misunderstanding to project onto a Buddhist teacher the role of a pastor or a therapist with whom we discuss our personal problems and seek advice. That's not the role of a Buddhist spiritual teacher. A Buddhist spiritual teacher traditionally gives the teachings and it's up to us to figure out how to apply them. It's really only appropriate to ask about questions regarding our understandings of the teachings and about our meditation practice. If you have psychological problems, you go to a therapist. You don't go to your spiritual teacher. And especially what's inappropriate is to discuss marital or relationship problems or sexual problems with a monk or a nun. They're celibate. They're not involved in that. These are not the people to ask about these types of problems. But again, we expect that coming from a tradition that has pastors, priests or rabbis or whatever in our churches, that they're going to take on this general function of guiding us through things in our lives, dealing with us on that personal level about our personal lives, and so on. I give the example. I was with my spiritual teacher, Sirka Rinpoche, for nine years, very closely, most of the time, every day. Never in those nine years did he ask me a personal question. Never. About my personal life, about my family, about my background, nothing. It was all day-to-day in terms of either him teaching me, or my working with him to benefit others, to translate for him, or arrange his travels, or whatever. So, very different type of relationship, which is not easy for us to understand. In terms of working with the teacher, it brings us to the topic of refuge, which I like to call safe direction. It's putting a direction in our lives, indicated by the Buddha Dharma and Sangha. It's a misunderstanding of refuge to trivialize it into merely joining a club. You cut a little piece of your hair, you get a little red string, you get a new name, and now we've joined the club. Especially because the teacher is from a specific Tibetan lineage, we consider the club we're joining to be a specific lineage of Tibetan Buddhism rather than Buddhism in general. Now I have become a Galupa. Now I have become a Karmakarya. Now I have become a Nyingma. Now I've become a Satya rather than now I'm following the path of the Buddha. And because of this misunderstanding, we become sectarian, exclusivist, and we never go to another Dharma center. It's really quite interesting that you look at the phenomenon in the West and most people just stay in one Dharma center and they never go to another one. And what's even more confusing is that every teacher that comes seems to want to set up their own Dharma center and their own organization, which is a big mistake, I feel, because then it becomes unsustainable. 
you can't sustain 400 different brands of Buddhism indefinitely in the future very confusing for new students and it is a big financial drain and burden to support all these places with their altars and their libraries and paying rent and so on and so on in Tibet although many different teachers came different monasteries were established eventually they came together and you formed distinct groups not the same groups that you had in India you didn't have Kagyu or Sakya in India but groups that then became sustainable which put together, brought together various lineages so even though we have large organizations in uh, Western Dharma in terms of what's been started by Trumpa Rinpoche and Sogyal Rinpoche and Lama Yeshe, Lama Zopa, etc. We need to, <laughs> in a sense, go more in this direction. Well, it becomes very difficult because there are two extremes here. One is if it's too fragmented, it doesn't work. On the other hand, if it's too regulated, that also doesn't work. And so one has to be very careful here, but I think sustainability is a big issue. In terms of not going to other Dharma centers, it's also a misunderstanding to think that we can't study with other teachers, even from within our own teacher's lineage. Most Tibetans have several teachers, not just one. Atisha had 155 teachers. It's recorded. Different teachers have different specialities. One is good at explaining this, one is good at explaining that. One has this lineage, one has that lineage. It's not being disloyal to your teacher to have many teachers. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, we can look at our teachers like the 11-headed Avalokiteshvara, that each teacher is like a different face, all in terms of a central figure being our spiritual guidance something like that so that's very important then not to take several teachers that conflict with each other that doesn't work you have to find teachers that have a good what's called tamsik in Tibetan a close bond with each other are harmonious with each other because unfortunately there are such things as what sometimes we call spiritual star wars between various spiritual teachers that disagree very violently about certain issues whether it's protectors or who's the real karmapa or whatever these sort of things so one has to choose teachers that are harmonious if one's going to have more than one teachers and what is essential here is to realize that just to listen to a lecture by a Buddhist teacher doesn't automatically make this person our spiritual teacher with all the implications of guru devotion although we need to show them respect as this holiness says you can go to anybody's teaching and attend it just as a lecture as you would a university lecture doesn't imply anything further than that okay now as for practice it's a misunderstanding to think that the Galuk tradition is purely a study lineage and Kargyu and Nyingma are purely practice lineages and so if we're following one of them we neglect the other aspect we neglect our study or we neglect our meditation when teachers emphasize one or the other of these 
study or meditation, that doesn't mean that we do just one and ignore the other. It's quite clear that we need both of them. Recently, in an audience with the group of Westerners who had studied at the library in Dharamsala in the 70s and 80s, His Holiness used a very nice example. He said that Tantra and Mahamudra and Dzogchen, these sort of practices are like fingers on a hand. The palm of the hand, the base, are the teachings of the Indian tradition from Nalanda Monastery, teachings of the Indian Nalanda Masters on Sutra. The misunderstanding is to put too much emphasis on the fingers. Sometimes teachers do that as well. Put too much emphasis on the fingers and to study and practice only the fingers and forget about the hand. The fingers extend out from the hand and are not functional on their own. This was the image, the analogy that His Holiness used, and I think that is a very helpful advice. It's a misunderstanding to think that, well, all I have to do is practice Dzogchen, just sit and be natural, and so on. So oversimplifying these type of teachings without having the basis. Similarly, it's a misunderstanding to think that we are milarepas, and that everyone, specifically we ourselves, need to go into a lifelong retreat, or at least do a three-year retreat. Only a few people are suited for a life of full-time meditation. Most need to involve themselves in social welfare. This is directly the advice of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Very, very rare that we really are suited for a lifetime of meditation retreat, or that we can seriously benefit from a three-year retreat without just sort of sitting there and repeating mantras for three years, but not really working on a deep level on ourself. Of course, intensive full-time Dharma practice is necessary for becoming liberated or enlightened, and it's a mistake to overestimate that we can accomplish liberation and enlightenment without that full-time practice. We think, well, I can just practice in my spare time and I'm going to become liberated in enlightenment. That also is a misunderstanding. But it is also a mistake not to be objective with ourselves and about our capacity to be able to do that intensive practice now. Because especially what happens is that if we push ourselves and we really aren't able to do this type of practice, we really become very frustrated. We get what the Tibetans call lung, frustrated, nervous energy, and it really messes us up psychologically, emotionally, and physically. And so this also ties in a little bit with not believing in rebirth. Because if we don't believe in rebirth, we're not looking seriously in terms of long-time goals after many, many eons of practice. There is the teaching that says it is possible to achieve enlightenment in this lifetime, but that shouldn't be an excuse to think, well, we only have this lifetime because there is no rebirth, and therefore pushing ourselves beyond what we're able to do at the moment. Also, looking at the other side of this, it's a mistake to underestimate the importance of daily meditation practice. It is very important if we're going to sustain our Dharma practice to have a daily meditation routine. There are many, many benefits of that. 
in terms of discipline, in terms of commitment, in terms of adding stability in our lives, dependability, that we are always going to do this every day, no matter what. And if we seriously are going to try to build up more beneficial habits, which is what meditation is all about, we need to practice. Practice means in a controlled environment, practice being patient and so on, by imagining different situations, analyzing what are the causes of our problems. Why am I upset about this or that situation? Why, when I get sick, do I become short-tempered? And then you go deeper and deeper and see, well, I'm focusing on me. I'm suffering. Poor me. Even if we don't consciously think poor me while I'm sick. But our focus is on the me. Then we make that a strong me. And then, we, of course, we don't like what we're experiencing. We become irritated. And then we project it onto other people. So this is what you do in meditation. You analyze that, what's going on each day. So a daily practice in which we examine these things, in which we work on some beneficial habit in a regular type of way is very beneficial. It's a big misunderstanding to think that we can do without that. Also, it's a misunderstanding to think that practice, Buddhist practice, means merely doing a ritual and not primarily to work on ourselves. Many people think that. Well, I'll do my little this sadhana or that sadhana, and we recite it sometimes in Tibetan, a language that we don't even understand, and we think that that is practice. It's also Kenzie Rinpoche, who was here some months ago, gave a wonderful example. He said that if Tibetans had to recite prayers and various practices every day in German, written in Tibetan letters phonetically without having the slightest idea of what they were saying, he doubts that very many Tibetans would actually do that. Yet we do that as Westerners and consider that practice and that that's enough. Actual practice means to work on ourselves, work on changing our attitudes, work on our disturbing emotions, Analyze, understand, build up more beneficial habits of love, compassion, and correct understanding, and so on. Another misunderstanding in terms of practice, to think that to practice Dharma properly, we need to follow Tibetan or other forms of Asian customs in terms of an elaborate Tibetan-style altar, or shrine room, or even Dharma center. Many Tibetans who come, of course, like to set up a Dharma center like a Tibetan gompa, a Tibetan temple, with the colors of the walls and the paintings, and you can see it here in this room. And as a Tibetan would say, if you like it, if the Western people like it, why not? There's no harm. But to think that it's absolutely necessary is a big mistake, especially when it is a tremendous expense in which the money could be used much more beneficially in other ways. So, whether this is at a Dharma center, whether this is in our home, and so on, we don't need something elaborate, Tibetan style, in order to practice Tibetan Buddhism. Although the main emphasis in Dharma is eliminating forever the causes of suffering, 
namely our ignorance or unawareness about reality, our disturbing emotions, these sort of things. The misunderstanding is to think that overcoming disturbing emotions will happen quickly and forgetting that we will still have them to a gradually diminishing extent all the way up to becoming an arhat. Only when we become an arhat, a liberated being, will we be completely free of anger and attachment and so on. If we forget this, we get discouraged when we still get angry after years of practice. Very, very common. It's a mistake not to have patience with ourselves. We have to realize that Dharma practice goes up and down, just like samsara. It goes up and down. And over the long term, we could hope for improvement. It's not going to be so easy. So it's a mistake not to have patience with ourselves when we do have the down periods. But on the other hand, we need to avoid the extreme of being too permissive with our negative habits and being lax or lazy about working on ourselves. So a middle path here. Not beating ourselves when we still get angry, but not just saying, well, I feel angry or I'm in a bad mood and not trying to apply some Dharma method for overcoming that. It's very interesting to see what we turn to when we're in a bad mood. What we turn to for relief. Do I turn to meditation? Do I turn to refuge? Or do I turn to chocolate? Or sex? Or the television? Or chatting with my friends? What do I turn to? I think that is very revealing of our Dharma practice how we deal with being in bad moods. It's a misunderstanding. (laughs) This is a difficult one. It's a misunderstanding to think we can gain liberation or enlightenment without having to overcome biology, specifically sex, despite the fact that in Tantra it's possible on advanced stages to use desire and sexual energy in order to get rid of desire and sexual energy. But this is only when we are on extremely advanced stages and have control over our subtle energy system. It's a serious mistake to consider Tantra as a method for having exotic sex. We are aiming to gain liberation. Liberation means liberation from this, this type of physical body with all its biological drives and so on, and to have the type of body of a liberated or enlightened being made of light and so on, and not subject to these limitations. So often we want to gain liberation and enlightenment cheaply, without having to give up these sort of body pleasures, as it were. So this is a misunderstanding. So that brings us to Tantra. There are many, many misunderstandings about that. Often these misunderstandings come because of marketing. Tantra, Dzogchen, these things are marketed very cleverly as being the easy path, the speedy path, and all of that, the best path, and so on. And because of that marketing, whether marketed by... Tibetan teachers or various Western or Tibetan practitioners for whatever reason they might present it that way it's a misunderstanding about Tantra or Dzogchen or Tantra that these are easy paths 
and being attracted to them for that reason because we think they're easy and quick why would we do that? as one of my teachers pointed out it could either be because we're lazy and so you want something which is easy and quick we don't want to put in the work or we want to find a bargain like getting enlightenment cheap the way that we look for bargains when we go shopping in a store we have that mentality often when we are looking at various dharma methods what's the bargain? what's on sale this week? (laughs) this type of thing Tantra practice and Dzogchen and all these things require a tremendous amount of work they are tremendously difficult very very subtle and all of them specify that we need to do preliminary practices which are not easy these hundred thousands of prostrations and so on and it's a misunderstanding even if we accept that we need to do these preliminary practices such as prostration that we're going to get miracles from them this also can be from marketing or it could just be from our own overestimation of the power of these preliminaries I'm so desperate just tell me what to do okay throw myself on the ground a hundred thousand times repeat some syllables in another language a hundred thousand times and then all my problems will go away this is a misunderstanding so out of desperation you do it, you do it, you do it expecting that at the end some miracle is going to happen and it doesn't and then we are completely disillusioned about Dharma practices now of course purification practices can be effective but not effective when 99% of the time your mind is wandering and you're not focused on what you're doing or you don't have a strong proper motivation in order for these practices to be effective and even when they're effective they don't produce miracles that means doing it properly with complete concentration and full proper motivation and so on that's not easy is it or just to think after I've done a hundred thousand I've paid my dues and now let's get to the good stuff so again in a sense almost begrudging these preliminary practices and I just want to get it over with and not really seeing the value that they have in and of themselves to build up some positive force like over and over again putting this positive direction in our life refuge, reaffirming Buddha, Dharma and Sangha this is the direction I'm going over and again generating bodhicitta these type of preliminaries are very very helpful also in terms of these mundro preliminaries it's a mistake to do them before having even a basic understanding of Buddhism and therefore thinking of it simply as a way to cleanse our sins as it were we go to a teacher and this happens often in the West we go to a teacher and immediately before any teachings before any understandings do 100,000 prostrations and people actually do it which is amazing so you ask yourself why would they do this and usually it's out of desperation or thinking that some miracle will happen from it or they are going into some sort of almost like a cult thing 
and just will obey the teacher like in the army. That's a mistake to just think that the relation with the teacher is like the relation with some officer in an army. You just obey unquestioningly. Very important never to lose that critical faculty. His Holiness always emphasizes that. Be critical. That doesn't mean criticizing, although the word sounds the same in English. Critical means examine what's going on. Criticize means to think I'm so much better and you're terrible, looking down on them and with a very negative attitude. So, it's important if we're going to do these Ngundro practices that we have the basis, we understand what we're doing. And this is indicative of a larger misunderstanding, which is engaging in Tantra practice prematurely, even if we start with Ngundro. For example, there are in traditions that present strong emphasis on this Ngundro, these preliminary practices, there's a shared or common Ngundro, which are the four thoughts that turn our mind to the Dharma, that's basically covering the Lamrim material, the greatest stage material, and then the uncommon, the special, unshared ones, which are the prostrations and so on. And so skipping over or trivializing or minimizing these shared preliminaries, the basic Lamrim teachings, and just jumping immediately to the prostration and so on, often leads to, as I say, very unrealistic attitudes towards the prostrations and the Vajrasattvas and so on, and uh, can make problems. After a while, you start to question, why in the world am I doing this? What is the point? Whereas if we have a clear understanding, at least to a certain level beforehand, of the importance of building a positive force, eliminating negative potentials, or at least minimizing them, because we want to achieve this and this type of goal, spiritual goal, then the preliminaries make some sort of sense. So, as I say, the problem here is not just getting into the Mundra prematurely, but getting into Tantra prematurely. And this happens so, so frequently because, could be because we ask visiting lamas to give initiations, even if our group isn't ready for being able to practice them, or the visiting lamas themselves offer initiations, even when the audience is mostly unprepared. So, we are not totally responsible for this misunderstanding of the overemphasis on Tantra and its presentation and practice done prematurely for most people. Why would we ask for an initiation? There could be many reasons. We think it's so high, this is the real stuff, this exotic, it will attract more people, which means that we will collect more money so that we can actually pay for the visiting teacher and support our center. So it could be for financial reasons, which is most unfortunate that that happens. The teacher themselves could be motivated by thinking that, okay, they're not going to practice, but we will plant seeds for future lives. Most Westerners don't believe in future lives, so that's a misunderstanding. Or teachers themselves don't really understand that the Westerners don't have the background to be able to 
practice Tantra effectively, or they, again, could be pressured by having to raise money to support the monastery and the monks back home. There are many reasons for this. But what's always advised is that if there's a visiting teacher, to ask them for the basic teachings. And if it's more advanced teachings that we want, advanced sutra teachings, advanced teachings on bodhicitta, advanced teachings on voidness, and so on. Also, when being involved with tantra, and we want instructions of how to practice Again, it's a misunderstanding to think that the main emphasis in the practice is the visualization. And we worry so much about getting all the little details correctly. My teacher, Sirkan Rinpoche, used to use an example in being making fun of the Westerner misunderstanding here. He said, people coming to me and asking, does Yamantika or Vajrayogini have a belly button? This is ridiculous. This is missing what the essence, what the important points are in these practices. Sure, when you want to develop single-pointed concentration and so on, we need all the details, but that's not what you focus on or emphasize in the beginning. What one wants to get is basic understanding of, Sankhapa says it very clearly, the three principal aspects of the path. Renunciation, giving up Ordinary appearance, clinging to things in terms of existing with true existence and so on. It requires tremendous determination to be free. Renunciation of that. Bodhicitta, we are aiming to to achieve enlightenment. These Buddha figures, these Yidams, represent our future enlightenment that we are aiming to achieve. So we imagine that we're there now. Without Bodhicitta, why would you imagine yourself in this form? and do all the activities of benefiting others. So obviously we want to be like this in order to benefit others. And then the whole understanding of voidness, that we don't exist truly like this now, but we have the potentials, you have to put in the cause and effect, it's dependent arising, and so on. Not that I am Tara, or you could be I am Cleopatra, for that matter. So, if we're going to get teachings on Tantra, and be sure that it's teachings on this type of level. This is what we need to emphasize. What is the point of all of this? What are we trying to do? That's why you need the, all the preparation beforehand. Not just worry about all the tiny little visualization details. What does the jewelry look like? And stuff like that. Although there are the instructions of what it looks like. Don't emphasize that. Particularly not in the beginning. But when it was interesting at the Palachakra initiation in Toronto, Canada, in 2004. His Holiness gave teachings on, I forget which text, but one of the texts of Nagarjuna on voidness as the preliminary. So that was about three days, and then after that he gave the initiation. And what was noticeable was that many more people were there for the initiation then we're there for the teachings on voidness. And His Holiness said, he really appreciated those people who came only for the teachings of Nagarjuna and didn't stay for the initiation, rather than the people who did the opposite, 
who skipped these initial teachings, basis teachings, and just came for the initiation. So this tells us a lot, an awful lot. In terms of these Tantra practices, it's a misunderstanding to look at the Yidams like saints that we pray to for help. Saint Tara, Saint Chenrezig, and so on, that, like that. Although, I mean, and this is not limited to a Western misunderstanding, but in a sense, worshipping them, they may inspire us, as can Buddhas and lineage gurus, but we need to do the work ourselves. See, some of this misunderstanding comes from translation issue. When we make requests to the various gurus and yidams and so on in the request prayers, first of all, <laughs> the word prayer to us has the connotation of praying to God and God grant me something or praying to a saint and the saint be an intermediary to God for me so that God will grant me something. Already we have a little bit of being misled here, a little bit of projection. But when we make requests, the word here is chingilab in Tibetan. And that's usually translated as blessings. Well, this gives a completely different and misleading connotation here. We ask, bless me to be able to do this, bless me to be able to do that. As if... All that we need is the power of these figures to come and bless us. And all of a sudden, we get all our realizations and so on. This is not Buddhism. The term literally means to uplift and brighten. That's the meaning, adhishtana in Sanskrit. Adhishtana, to put us in a higher position, to uplift that has the connotation of to make more bright. And so I prefer to translate it as inspire. So we request them to inspire us to achieve this and this and that. But these figures, whether gurus, whether Buddhas, whether the Yidams, can't from their own side, by their own power, grant us our wishes and do everything for us that all we have to do is submit to them. That again is interpolation, projecting a Western idea, concept onto Buddhism. Main emphasis is always that we need to do the work ourselves. We have the Buddhas, the Gurus, they can inspire us, they can teach us, they can guide us, but they can't do the work for us. We have to understand ourselves. Similar to this, it's a misunderstanding to overemphasize protector practice. Often you have this at Dharma centers, for example. Every week they do a protector practice, or every day they do a protector practice, and even newcomers come and do the protector practice without having the slightest idea, really, of what they're doing. And seeing or regarding the protector as the one that will protect us, as the word protect implies, from all our obstacles and dangers and so on. And forgetting that we need to protect ourselves in terms of whatever happened to karma and refuge. We're going in a safe direction, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, in order to avoid going to worse rebirths. Initial scope teachings, 
It isn't that we go to a protector in order to avoid worse rebirths. Nowhere does it say that in the teachings, does it? Go to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and they're not going to protect us in the sense of saving us. They teach us what to do. We have to do it ourselves. Set the example. And karma. Avoid destructive behavior. What does it mean to go in that safe direction of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? The safe direction primarily is Dharma. Dharma is referring, the deepest Dharma jewel is referring to the third and fourth noble truths. And so the true stopping of the causes for suffering and therefore the true stopping of suffering and the true path or pathway mind that will lead to that the understanding of voidness, etc. and that result from it. That's the direction that we're going in. And that exists in full on the mental continuum of a Buddha, the Buddhas, many Buddhas, and in part on the mental continuum of the Arya Sangha. And that's the direction. And if we do that, we protect ourselves from suffering. Dharma, the Sanskrit word, comes from the root to hold us back. Holds us back so that we avoid suffering. It's not that a protector does that for us. Protector is like a supplement. There are many ways of viewing protectors. Sirkin Rinpoche used to describe protectors as being like a large, vicious dog. He said, if you are in the center of a mandala, as a deity, let's say Yamantika, a really strong, forceful deity, that you need to be able to have the power to control these protectors. They're like a wild dog. And although you could stand at the gate and chase away robbers, why do that when you can get a dog to do that? But you have to be the master. You have to be in control. So even if we think in terms of a protector as helping us, in terms of chasing away interferences and robbers and so on, we are the ones that are basically in control of all of that. In other words, if we take them as actual beings, spirits or whatever, which Tibetans do, they can provide circumstances for our own karma to ripen. If we don't have the karma ourselves to ripen, what they do isn't going to help. Same thing like doing medicine Buddha pujas and stuff like that. It's not going to be effective. It's not the cause itself for us to get better. It's a circumstance for our own positive karma to ripen. Or in some cases with protectors, it's a circumstance for our negative karma to ripen so that it burns away any more serious obstacles that we would have in the future for success, that would prevent success. It can work in many ways. But the mistake here, the misunderstanding, is to overemphasize the protector practices, to make that the central thing, rather than Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And it becomes almost the worship of some sort of spirit. And there are many problems that come from that, as is illustrated with the controversial protector issue among the Tibetans. So one has to really be careful about that, and I think that it is not very wise for a Dharma center to have a public protector practice every day or every week or every month in which anybody can come. Newcomers can come, because especially if these texts are translated 
They're pretty heavy. So, smash the intruders, the enemies, and so on. It can be pretty heavy and very easily misunderstood. So one has to be very cautious about that. Now, about initiations in terms of Tantra. It's a misunderstanding to take a Tantra initiation without examining the teacher or the practice. And even if we do examine them, it's a mistake, a misunderstanding, to take the initiation with no intention to actually practice the Tantra system. The purpose of initiation, or empowerment, is to activate and strengthen, enhance our Buddha nature factors so as to be able to engage in the practice of a specific deity system. That's the whole purpose of it. Through the various rituals and visualizations and so on of what's going on, it activates these seeds, plants more seeds, so that we can engage in a specific practice. It's an initiation to start that practice. When we misunderstand this, we indiscriminately attend any initiation by any lama into any practice. And we go either for the blessings or because of group pressure. That's a mistake to do just that. You know, going to an empowerment and initiation is serious business. And we have to examine fully this teacher. Do I want to establish a special relationship with this teacher? Is my tantric guru? Most of us have no idea what that actually means. And do I want to do this specific deity practice as opposed to another one? And am I seriously wanting to do that? Either now or I fully intend to get to it later. Obviously we can go as an anthropological event. You go as an anthropologist to see what these sort of natives are doing in some native ritual. Okay, His Holiness says, if you want to go as, he calls it, a neutral observer, that's not a problem. But to just go like that really trivializes the initiation process. And it's a misunderstanding, further misunderstanding, to think if we go like that to an initiation, as an anthropology event, or just for blessings, or group pressure, everybody else is going, and so we have to go. It's a misunderstanding to think that we've received the vows and commitments from merely being present at the initiation without knowingly and willingly taking them on. You only receive vows if you consciously take them on. Just being there doesn't mean that you've taken the vows or that you've received the initiation. Vents take their dogs with them to the initiation. doesn't mean that the dogs have the vows. And that the dog now is initiated, has the initiation into the practice. I mean, obviously they take it for the blessings or whatever, but do we want to attend the initiation just like a dog? This is the point to think, oh, we'll get high on it. Something like that. On the other hand, it's equally a misunderstanding to think that we can receive an initiation and engage in the practice without having taken on and keeping the vows. One of the most important aspects of an initiation, of an empowerment, is the vows. It's said very clearly in many texts, there is no initiation without the vows. And so, minimum, we have bodhisattva vows in all initiations of all classes, including Dzogchen, 
Tsongkhapa and Atisha emphasize that we need some sort of level of Pradimoksha vow or practice as the basis for that, even if it's just the lay vows, or it doesn't even have to be all five of them. Avoid killing, stealing, lying, etc. Some sort of basis of general ethics. Then the Bodhisattva vows, and if it's the two higher classes of Tantra, the Tantric vows. That's absolutely essential. And we need to do that quite seriously, examining, can I actually keep these? If there's a practice commitment, sometimes there are practice commitments with uh, an initiation. It's a misunderstanding that we can bargain with the teacher to lessen the commitment, like haggling with a shopkeeper in an oriental market to get a cheaper price. Sometimes I've certainly seen Westerners do that. In Dharamsala, His Holiness gives uh, empowerment, and the commitment is to do the practice every day for the rest of your life. For instance, the Lama Chuba, the Guru Puja. Holiness gives the teachings on that, and the commitment is to do it every single day for the rest of your life. And then the Westerners want to go to it, but they will bargain, try to bargain. Well, we have a busy life and so on. Do we really have to do it? Can we just do it sometimes when we have the time? Try to get it cheap at a cheaper price. That's a big misunderstanding. We're going to get the teachings. The point is that we want to do the practice. We're serious about it. Otherwise, why get the teachings? Just out of curiosity? That's not the point. These teachings are supposed to be precious. Something sacred that you only would study on the basis of really wanting to do it. This, of course, becomes a difficult issue with Internet and books and stuff like that because the other side, as His Holiness Dalai Lama says, is that so much is available anyway. And there's so much wrong information about the Dharma and about Tantra. It's better to have the correct information out there. As His Holiness and it sometimes jokes, it's better to go to a hell with correct understanding than to go with the wrong understanding. With the correct understanding, you bounce out of it much more quickly. So whether that's to be taken literally or a joke, I don't know, but it gives us something to think about. But that's not an excuse. We're going to get these teachings. There's a commitment. Take it seriously. If there is this daily recitation commitment, it's a misunderstanding not to take that seriously and thinking we can miss a day when we don't feel like doing it. I'll only do it when I feel like doing it. Or taking on too many lifelong practice commitments without realistically considering whether or not we'll be able to maintain them. That was a very, very common mistake in the 70s in India. In those days, the initiations were given much more readily. The full initiations with the full practice commitments. And we Westerners took them, took these empowerments, and took on these commitments, thinking that we could always keep them. And you look, even just 10 years later, let alone 20, 30, 40 years later, and how many people have actually kept them and kept on doing them? Only a handful. And even when taking them on, in those days, many people really had a struggle to do the daily practice because 
they left it. They were too busy in the morning. Morning isn't a good time for me, you know, thinking that. And they would leave it to night. And then they would have two or three hours of practice to do. And they would fall asleep while practicing and then sit there and nod off. And it would take them half the night to get through the thing. And it became a torture. And so this is a big problem. If we're going to take practice commitments, be realistic about it, of what we can actually do. And these practice commitments, they're serious when they say this is to do every day for the rest of your life. And why do you want to do it every day for the rest of your life? Because I'm really serious about gaining liberation and enlightenment. And this is, I understand the basic Tantra method. This is very important. Polyus always emphasizes that. If you're going to be involved with Tantra, it should be on the basis of understanding what Tantra is all about and having confidence in the effectiveness of the method. Otherwise, why are you doing this? Especially if you think it just implies some weird visualization and mumbling some mantras. Then after a while, you give up because this seems ridiculous. Why am I doing this? So it's important to really consider whether or not we can actually fulfill these commitments. And lastly, it's a misunderstanding of Tantra practice to consider it merely to be a recitation of a ritual or merely repetition of a mantra without strong meditation on bodhicitta and voidness. We'll have that misunderstanding. I just do this ritual, I just recite blah, 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 blah. Try to visualize. Most of the time we can't visualize, it's too complicated. So we want to do the easiest versions. And think that something is going to really happen on the basis of this. And very often it becomes just an escape into fantasy land without it really being an effective method for putting together all the teachings. Tantra is a way of putting all the teachings together so that during a, the script of the ritual, at this point you generate the four immeasurable attitudes, this point refuge, at this point bodhicitta, at this point you reaffirm the vows, at this point many, many points you do voidness meditation, At different points in the script, we generate different dharma understandings and realizations. So if you haven't practiced the methods before that, then when it's called for in the ritual to just, with a few words, now I have the understanding of voidness, what do you do? You're just reciting words then. It doesn't do anything to just recite the words. So... Tantra practice requires a great deal of all this background. It's a mistake to think that it's just going blah, blah, blah. With some recitation, which is mostly done with mental wandering anyway. So, these are some of the misunderstandings that came to my mind just when sitting down and thinking about it. I'm sure there are many, many more that we could list. As I say, there are many misunderstandings that come simply because of the difficulty of the material, especially the case in terms of misunderstanding, avoidness of the different tenant systems, and so on. One of the points about Dharma is whatever Buddha taught was for the benefit of others. So if we take that seriously, we try to figure out what is the purpose 
of all of this, of any of it. If we don't understand it, ask, examine, follow the Dharma methods. If there are some mental blocks, then building up more positive force is the way to overcome those mental obstacles or emotional obstacles. It says that very clearly in the text. So we need to take that seriously. It's a misunderstanding not to take that seriously. Don't understand this, so do a lot of Manjushri practice, for example. And that doesn't mean just going blah, blah, blah with a mantra, but with a clear visualization and imagination that my mind becomes clearer and clearer opening the visualization which helps us to imagine that graphically so what that does is establish with very strong willpower to make my mind more clear be inspired to be more clear that can be of great help but to just push and push and push without relying on the Dharma methods to overcome these obstacles and blocks and it might require a great deal of effort I used to consider some of my travels going around giving I was invited to many places to teach as bodhicitta retreats I would get in a sense stuck in what I was writing or what I was translating and then I would go out on a tour something like that and through that in terms of interacting with others, trying to be generous with the teachings, and so on, that would build up a certain amount of positive force to come back, and then my mind would be clearer to overcome the blocks that I might have been having. Don't try to look at things in that way. So, anyway, these are some of my thoughts. Perhaps you have some questions. Yeah. A small question about sometimes for me it's, uh, it sounds very magical what is promised if you do this or that. Like when you, I read in some texts about uh, taking refuge, you are protected from uh, uh, human, non-human beings and all kind of things which happen. Mm. And or you do this mantra and or you go to under a door mantra, the small mantras, and 40,000 eons are purified. That sounds like a fairy tale. Mm. And, uh, for example, for refuge, I always have the, the question for me, what does it mean when I get up in the morning taking refuge? Is it just getting again what I want in life, that I want to aim to enlightenment, or is this really some magical thought I create in me? Right. Well, your question brings up two points. One is saying that how do we relate to some of the teachings that sound very magical, like if we uh, take refuge then we're protected from humans and non-humans and uh, refuge in this Buddha purifies negative force for 40,000 eons and in that Buddha 35,000 and in this one 556,000 I'm just making up the numbers but uh, with the 35 so-called confession Buddhas and so on and you wonder where in the world do they come up with these numbers and how do I relate to them This sounds like magic. And the uh, other aspect of your question was, when you take refuge in the morning, is it actually putting this direction in our lives of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, or is it, again, some sort of magic formula that we say? Well, as I said, magic formulas are really a misunderstanding of teachings. I mean, magic means that 
almost things happen for no reason. And certainly that's not accepted by Buddhist logic, that the result can happen without a cause. So we don't have magic here. But these numbers... So, I mean, if we are reaffirming our direction each morning, safe direction and refuge, that really is setting a strong intention for what I'm doing with my day. That's emphasized in so many teachings. So that has a certain value. That's it about. That is what it is about. And it protects me from this and that harm. Well, if I achieve liberation, third and fourth noble truths, then I'm out of samsara, so I will not experience any suffering. So, okay, we can understand it like that. Now, these numbers, I must confess that I have a great deal of difficulty accepting them literally. And I uh, don't really pay much attention to that. Now, am I picking and choosing in terms of these teachings? I don't know. I regard it as more in terms of doing this is very powerful. As it says in some of the Mahayana Sutras, even reciting the name of this Bodhisattva builds up innumerable merit of so many eons and so on. So, okay, recite it or whatever, but even though it gives the impression that just reciting it is enough, I really question if that really can be taken only literally. I think there has to be some understanding of what this Bodhisattva did in order to become a Bodhisattva. Also, their names actually mean something. So just to recite their names in Sanskrit or Tibetan and not know what they mean is a problem. And the numbers, as I say, I don't pay very much attention to personally. It doesn't matter whether it's 35,000 or 45,000 eons. So... It's not that I would say that this is stupid. That's putting down the teachings. That is certainly not something which is positive to do. But I don't see it as the essential part of the teaching, how many eons it purifies you of. So, again, one needs to apply what we find in Mahayana, which is the division between interpretable and definitive teachings. Interpretable literally means teachings that will lead us to a deeper understanding, and definitive are what they lead us to. So the definitive are about voidness, deepest understanding of voidness, and everything else is to lead us there. So by saying that this builds up 35,000 eons of positive force, and this 45,000, I think just encourages us to build a positive force, which will lead to a deeper understanding. So I take it on that level and not think of it in terms of magic. It's a very good that you bring up because many lamas have been emphasizing reading some of the sutras, reciting them, which of course is a very positive thing to do, the Golden Light Sutra and so on. And in that we find these passages that are not easy to relate to. Or some wheels so might cure you from cancer. So. Right, well, to say turn a prayer wheel and it will cure you from cancer, I think is a little bit naive. So, yeah. A little it bit sounds, naive. It sounds like magic. 
Oh, do you have a pre- well, it's not so much magic. I mean, you know the joke. Yeah, it's, it's, the joke in terms of may I win the lottery? May I win the lottery? Yeah. Praying yeah. to uh, Buddha or to God, and God or Buddha or whoever appears and says, "Idiot, buy a lottery ticket." <laughs> Yeah. And so uh, we have to build up the cause. And so if we build up the causes in terms of positive force and so on, well, the prayer wheel might help us to build up a more positive, optimistic attitude, which helps to strengthen the immune system and so on. But just by itself, it certainly can't cure us of cancer. That's naive. That is sometimes what what it looks looks like. That is that's what it looks like. But it's a misunderstanding, I think, to take everything totally literally. Yeah. Although there are some people who do. But teachings have deeper meanings. Don't rely on the teacher, but rely on their words. Yeah. Don't rely just on the words, but on their meaning. Not just on the meaning, but their definitive meaning of what they're leading to. Yeah. So we have these four reliances. Any other questions? But, yeah. uh, when we recite some uh, prayers, sometimes there's uh, a sentence or two saying, uh, please protect those borders, whatever, remind the vows you have made and protect us and do something good to us. And I always think, well, it, it must be a mistake or a way that it is not properly expressed in our language so because I think it's offending to make a Buddha remind his woes. He knows his woes. So I don't understand why we are doing all the always these reminders to the Buddha. Um, right, so she says in some of the prayers there are reminders to the Buddhas to uh, remember your vows to protect us. I don't personally know of texts that say that directed to the Buddhas. It's usually directed to the so-called oath-bound protectors. And these are usually various spirits that have been tamed by Guru Rinpoche or whoever and given an oath to protect the teachings and the practitioners. The medicine Buddha and the sadhana and the normal. Okay, so it's in the medicine Buddha sadhana, which I'm not familiar with that we remind the Buddha of his vow to help others with sickness. And your question is, why do we need to remind the Buddhas? We don't need to remind them. It's the same thing. Why do we need to request the Buddhas to do anything? They're going to do it anyway. So it's a matter of making ourselves more receptive and, in a sense, reminding us that they have these vows. And that they've taken these oaths so that we get a little bit more positive attitude, which strengthens the immune system. Although, I mean, that's not the way that the texts traditionally explain anything, but that's how these things work. Mm-hmm. Can this be a matter of translation as well? Can it be a matter of translation? I don't know. I'd have to see the text. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, there's one wall with the sexual misconduct and uh, mm-hmm. it's always uh, yeah, sexual misconduct uh, uh, for me a big mystery what really is sexual misconduct so what what uh, do the vows include or exclude or what can you right. okay so this is a very difficult question and a very important question in terms of inappropriate sexual behavior or sexual misconduct what is actually included in that and why And when we look at the 
evolution of the explanation of the vow or just in the explanation of the ten destructive or non-virtuous, so-called non-virtuous actions about inappropriate sexual behavior, we find that over history more and more things are specified in uh, starting from the Pali literature and then going in India more and more things are specified and then the Tibetans take over and it's not that it builds up cumulatively some commentaries in India add certain things and some add other things and then the Tibetans come and take different pieces of that and put it together in different presentations and different texts so this becomes a difficult issue doesn't it I've had a lot of discussion with uh, Tibetan geishas over this and one could say well aren't these things which are added and they weren't there originally originally it was basically just having sex with an inappropriate partner someone that is under the control of somebody else or guardianship of somebody else whether a, a husband or a parent or whatever and it's only specified in terms of heterosexual men in terms of women wasn't specified in terms of a woman practitioner so obviously things needed to be expanded and so the implication being that if things were added couldn't more things be added and certain things taken away is it culturally specific and what these geishas said was basically just because something was not specified in an earlier version doesn't mean that it wasn't the intention it's just that later on they specified what was meant how did they know what was meant that's another question of course but supposedly they are great realized beings and they know what will produce suffering the whole point is to minimize suffering that one causes to oneself under the influence of longing desire disturbing emotions and so on one geisha Geshe Wang Chen explained it very, very nicely. He's the tutor of Ling Rinpoche, the reincarnation of His Holiness, the senior tutor. And he explained that what we want to do with these vows about inappropriate sexual behavior is to set a limit. And as I was saying in my lecture, we are aiming for liberation from biology. And so ultimately, we need to overcome all sexuality. That doesn't mean that we have to become monks and nuns right now. But as an arhat or a Buddha, we're certainly not going to have sex. And we're not going to have this kind of body that would have the hormones that would drive us to have sex. So that is ultimately what we are part of the package of becoming a liberated being or an enlightened being, whether we like it or not. Now, the question is, are we going to set any limits to our sexual behavior with the intention that eventually we're going to overcome sexual drive. And what these vows are doing is setting limits. And so if within a certain tradition the limits are set in such and such a way, as specified in the text, well, those are those limits. As I said, if you can't keep those limits, fine, nobody's enforcing you to keep those limits. So you set a different boundary, but the point is to set a boundary that 
okay, I'm not going to indulge in absolutely any sexual thing, any sexual drive that comes to my mind like a dog. But I will exercise some self-control, not just blindly act out hormones and lust. So that's the intention of the vow, so that we overcome no matter what. There is an aspect of lust and attachment involved with sex. No matter what we say, no matter how much love is there. And so that's what the vows are intended. Now, what is actually specified in the vows, we would have to read it in the actual text. This is the text of your lineage. This is what it's specifying now. Because it doesn't specify it, it doesn't say that it's inappropriate to have sex with animals. Does that mean it's okay to have sex with animals? With the sheep? No, just because it doesn't say it doesn't mean that it's okay. So one has to analyze a little bit more deeply. It never talks about being unfaithful to your own partner. It only talks about having sex with somebody else's partner. So does that mean that it's okay? I mean, the sexual ethics thing becomes very, very complicated and very difficult because it does say that prostitution is okay as long as you pay for the prostitute, even if you're married. And so this doesn't go along with our Western ethics. So can we add things to it that would be inappropriate? Because certainly from a Western ethical point of view, that would be inappropriate. And I think, yes, I think one needs to understand the general spirit of the vow. And so is it culturally defined, like, for instance, this thing about prostitution? That's a very difficult one to answer. But I think that if one is going to take the vow, that one needs to read what is the vow that's specified in the text, and am I able to keep all of that? And if I'm not, then, as I say, take one of these intermediary category promises that I will avoid certain aspects of it. And then that's fine. You're being honest, not being a hypocrite. I think what causes problems is to be a hypocrite in it, that I take the vow, but I'm only going to keep part of it. Because then, undoubtedly, feelings of guilt come up, and eventually you just feel like a hypocrite. And it's basically making up your own version of a vow. So if you're going to make up your own version, don't call it the vow (laughs) in terms of limit. But I think it's very important in terms of sexual conduct to have certain boundaries with the understanding that I'm not going to just be like a dog. I'm aiming to overcome being under the control of this because it just perpetuates karma, rebirth, etc., and suffering. It's a difficult one, one that we as Westerners often will haggle over it like in the oriental market, the Indian market, to get a good price, you know, to get a bargain. Guilt in a way, having sex means oh, being guilty because uh, you do something provider which doesn't lead to part of enlightenment or whatever, in, in a way. It... Right, well, this is again feeling guilty, thinking that sex is dirty, this is not the path to enlightenment and so on. That could come, but again, this comes from the misunderstanding of Ethics, as I said in the very beginning, to think that these are laws and you have to obey them, and if you don't obey them, you're bad. And that sex in itself is dirty. I mean, it isn't the sexual act that is the problem. 
Bhava is a state of mind, then the state of mind is under the influence of longing, desire, and attachment. Regardless of how much love might be there as well, often that's an excuse, a justification. I always advise, if we're going to have sex, just have sex. Don't make a big deal out of it. And don't get too caught up in the lust and over-exaggerate it. I am a samsaric being. I have these bodily functions. And this is what happens. But I'm aiming for something better. It's not that it is bad. This gets into the whole issue of renunciation and determination to be free. The intermediate scope, which is very difficult, this intermediate scope of Lamrim, that on the initial scope, I want to have a precious human rebirth. But then, on the intermediate scope, we look at all the disadvantages of even that precious human rebirth. That even if I have a precious human rebirth, I'm going to have the whole period of being a baby, which is fairly useless. The whole period of being an old, demented person, which is fairly useless. There's sickness, there's frustration. I'm under the influence of hormones. All this sort of disadvantages, the garbage, the baggage that comes along with this human rebirth. And so you want to overcome that and attain enlightenment, but nevertheless you need the vehicle of the precious human rebirth in order to do that. So the point is not to over-exaggerate the emphasis and not to look at it in terms of incorrect consideration, considering what is basically dirty and a mess as being beautiful and so wonderful, and etc., not worshipping the body. So given the fact that I have a body like this, I have to eat, I have to sleep, I have to clean it, and there are certain sexual functions that are there. And if I'm not at the level of commitment, basically, to become a celibate monk or nun, that, okay, I will have sex. It's not that it is bad, not that I feel guilty about it, but I am using it as a grounds on which to set limits. And so the fact that with my sexual behavior I set limits, just as I might set limits on how much food I eat, and not just be a complete pig and stuff myself and become obese. (laughs) Likewise, I can set limits on my sexual behavior as well. And certain things I refrain from because I say, well, it just is out of desire. So in this way, you don't feel guilty about sex. Very delicate for us Westerners, especially coming from a background of many traditions that might either consider sex dirty or might consider it the best thing in the world. You gain enlightenment by having the perfect orgasm. So we tread on very delicate ground here when we deal with the sexual issue. But as I say, if you're going to have sex, don't make a big deal out of it. Don't overdo it. Don't make a big deal. It is what it is. Nothing more. Okay? So, let's end there with a dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all.